Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. It's an honor to have my guest here, Leslie Foster. Thanks for joining us on Adventist Voices. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've known you a while, and it's been really great to see your career grow. Um, You've been here in L.A. for how long? Just about 12 years now. It'll be 12 years next February. Great. And you've been working as an experimental filmmaker, writer, and kind of all-around traveling artist. Yeah, that, that sums it up pretty well. So... I want to explore um, your work, but let take us back to your Adventist connections. Where did you grow up? So I'm a missionary kid. I grew up in Southeast Asia, um, was born in Singapore, grew up in Indonesia, a little bit in Michigan, um, when my dad was doing his PhD at Andrews, um, and then the Philippines and Thailand. Okay, great. So um, where did you do your college? So I hopped around a little bit. I started college uh, studying biology in Thailand at Asia Pacific International University, which is the Adventist school in uh, Thailand. Um, studied German in Austria at Bogenhofen and then in Friedensau near Berlin, and then ended up at Southern in Tennessee. All right. So um, when you look back on kind of that uh, history, how does that um, it kind of inform your work today? I think growing up as a third culture kid, living all these places, going to school in all these places, exposed me to a lot of different styles of storytelling, a lot of different forms of visual storytelling, um, and definitely influenced me. A lot of times when people ask what influences me, it's hard to give them a a one-to-one. Often it's a distillation process, and so I kind of collect and amass these things, and then over years they slowly distill into what I create now. So let's talk about what you create now. Um, What kind of projects are you working on right today? So the heart of my art practice is is experimental film that's um, built into um, installation space. I really love installation space. Started really seriously doing it back in 2013 um, because I like this idea of heterotopias, uh, which Foucault came up with, this idea of spaces within spaces that subvert the broader spaces. And especially within gallery space, I think so often there are spaces that, despite how quirky and subversive artists are tend to be very white cis hetero dominated and i love the fact that i can go into these spaces and then create subversive space within them uh, spaces that are more welcoming for people of color for queer folks so let's talk a little bit about identities um what um what drives your interest in exploring that both in your writing and also in your aesthetics i mean that's a great question i think i mean Growing up as a closeted queer kid in the Adventist world is certainly gives me a lot of material. <laughs> um, and um, I think on top of that, just seeing the importance of giving people spaces that don't often have spaces. I don't ever want to be a voice for the voiceless because I don't think there's such a thing as voiceless people. I think there's people whose voices are suppressed. I'd much rather create platforms where I and other people who tend to be marginalized a little bit can speak more. Um, do you still identify as Adventist? It's a great question. Uh, sometimes. Um, <laughs> I identify... I mean, if you're going to ask me point blank, I'd say that I am a Christocentric universalist. I'm definitely a mystic. Um, I think there's a lot of things that I'm grateful for from my Adventist background. Um, I didn't have the roughest of, you know, 
Avenus childhoods. I look back and like there's a lot of things I really enjoyed and I'm grateful for. Um, though I was never particularly fond of the broader culture, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, In what it, way? I don't know. Like I, something I think as a kid always felt off to me. I was more interested in the theology and the ideas and the, you know, the latent mysticism that was there versus um, this kind of collective mentality, which always creeped me out a little bit. I tend to be a little bit of a loner, especially with ideology. And when kind of masses of people do something and demand that you do something, when there's peer pressure, it feels a little off to me. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. Um idea of masses of people in the context of Burning Man. Right. Uh, how long have you been going to Burning Man? I've gone to Burning Man for eight years. This year is actually the first year I'm not going since I started going. Okay. So what kind of got you interested in it? So back in 1999, there was a Wired Magazine article and I was, I was either just leaving the Philippines or just moving to Thailand and kind of just finishing up high school then. Um, and I saw that magazine and I started flipping through it and I was like, oh my word, these are my people. Like, this is something I have to attend. Um, and then it took so many more years after that. Um, so I hear about in 99 and my first year is 2011. So it was a significant amount of time. Um, and it wasn't until I'd moved to LA and found a community of burners um, that I kind of had the doors open to be able to go. And what sort of um, things do you do at Burning Man um, so I've done everything from run camps to be a temple guardian, but being a temple guardian is the thing that I consistently do. And I've done that for seven of the eight years I've gone there, um, holding space at the temple, um, which if you're not familiar is a space, um, that's built every year. It's gorgeous. Like imagine kind of an alien temple. Uh, it's, it's just beautiful out in this open desert and people usually go there made out of wood, usually made out of wood burns. It's the very last thing to burn, um, at the end of the week. Um, but people go there to leave their grief, to celebrate, to kind of have um, an experience that isn't restricted by kind of the default world spirituality. You can go there from any set of beliefs, any viewpoint, and really make that space your own. And the guardians are there to kind of guard that experience. Uh, we don't wear uniforms. There's very few badges of office. There's ways to identify us, but they're pretty tricky. Um, Mostly there for us to be able to spot the other people on our team pretty easily. But we want to be invisible. We don't want to be kind of the very visible priest or space holders because the minute you have an authority figure in the space like that, people feel like they have to constrain how they act. And that's not what we want. We actually just want to be able to facilitate people's reactions and emotions and experiences. Can you describe the atmosphere at the temple? Oh, the atmosphere is intense. Um, you walk across the barrier, usually a fence into the temple and you just feel it. And I've had friends just kind of say in awe their first time to the temple that they immediately felt something. Um, I'd say it also depends on the time. Um, I love doing shifts through the week. The beginning of the week, it's definitely a little lighter. Um, people are stopping by kind of admiring the architecture, admiring the beauty of the build that year. They aren't really doing a lot of the heavy work. Some people are obviously, but by the end of the week, there's almost this frantic, feeling because people know it's about to burn and they're really trying to get what they came there for. Um, whether that's to mourn somebody to celebrate something, but there definitely is more intensity. I mean, it goes from, you know, fairly busy to at night kind of dropping off to just wall to wall packed. Um, I usually, in the last few years, I've taken the shift right after the man burns on Saturday night. And that gets really interesting because people have had this really intense, almost wild experience. And then they're flooding in the temple for, this more peaceful experience, but that energy shift is 
pretty rough. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of do that shift. Um, there's a, a marked um, change and very charged nature to the atmosphere. You, you definitely have to be on your toes. And in the last few years, I've also started becoming a shift lead, which means I definitely have to be on my toes. Um, the Smithsonian had a art show devoted to Burning Man, um, and it had a temple uh, at the Resnick Gallery there in D.C. And it was interesting to see f- tourists and, um, re- you know, regular museum goers sort of experiencing this, um, you know, uh, part of what the temple represents. Um, was there something about the, the space, uh, what people are doing there that you think maybe Adventists could learn from? It's a great question. I think... Uh well, it's interesting because when I first started going, I was um, still regularly attending church, was an elder, um, actually only stopping elder like a year ago, okay. um, which is its own interesting journey. Um, but I, after my first year at Burning Man, and I'd already been struggling with this, but I had a much harder time coming back to kind of the way we do church, um, the way Adventist do church, the way the Christian world in a lot of spaces does church. What's also interesting as a side note is that there's a Quaker um, silent service every year at Burning Man. And that's become one of my favorite things to go to. I really love that way of doing church. Um, This kind of idea of a leaderless space um, where if you feel moved and you really do truly have to feel moved, you speak or you sing or you dance. But other than that, you spend that time in silence. I think the temple is similar in that um, there are no restrictions on behavior. You dictate your experience. You get what you need out of it. And your time isn't constrained. You can be there for 10 seconds and have an intense experience. You can be there for two hours. Um, I think I'd like to see a little more of that kind of wildness um, in spaces um, where there's still space for ritual, new and old, um, but where it doesn't feel stale. This is probably a downer question in a way, but since you've had a, a an experience there as a participant, but also in a kind of, um, I don't want to eat, maybe authority is the wrong word, but you're there trying to help people along and, and, um, you know, that there are some rules, I guess, to how the temple is run. I don't know if those are the right burning man terms, but I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in guardian training every year, we say it's not rules, but in some ways they're definitely rules. You know, the builders always ask, the temple builders ask that people not climb the temple. And so that's something we try to prevent people from doing. And we do it, we try to do it as gently as possible and as invisibly as possible. If we see someone trying to climb the temple, we try to get to them before they start climbing. Um, and that could be for any number of reasons um, because so much else in Burning Man is climbable. Sometimes people just think they can, which is fair enough. Um, sometimes, it seems like it's fun. Sometimes it comes out of this need to put something where they think it should belong. For example, hey, my father was a rock climber and I feel like his ashes need to go as high up in the temple as possible. And I think those are the hardest people to negotiate with because there's this emotional drive to be up there. Um, and we've had various workarounds. One year we had ladders to help people up and we would go and take um, their offerings up to higher levels. Um, but yeah, generally, that's one of the things we observe. Another rule is no fire because the place is built to burn and burn fast. Um, so incense, cigarettes, all of that stuff. Again, we try to do it in a way that doesn't raise attention to the interaction. We try to do it very gently and very quietly. Um, and again, if there's a lot of flexibility. If someone is mourning, um, 
in a very specific way and let's say they have lit instance, we can make the choice to not bother them, but stay and watch. But once you take that on, you have to stay until that instance is out until they're done. That can mean for the next five hours and your shift could have ended like 30 minutes back, you know, so you have to make those choices. Um, So it looks like there's a lot of responsibility on the guardians. There is a big part of training is just training your empathy and training um, your instincts because you will have a first instinct. And in training, we always talk about not listening to that first instinct, sitting with it and then going, because a lot of times your first instinct is going to be probably because of how we are raised somewhat authoritarian, because you do have a certain amount of, you know, authority and you want to go and tell somebody to stop and maybe tell them really harshly. And you just have to watch that stop, take a step back and ask yourself about that experience. You know, we train ourselves to not make any assumptions about someone's experience. If two people are screaming in a corner, they're just screaming in a corner. I don't know what that's about until I go up and listen. Um, and maybe that could be really joyful. Maybe it could be something that they're doing together in celebration and mourning. Maybe it could be something that I need to get help on, but I don't know that yet. So you are not going to Burning Man this year for the first time in a while, and you are a former elder in an Adventist church, but you aren't. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you've come to both of those endings? Yeah. So I'm, first of all, with Burning Man. Pauses. (laughs) Pauses, yeah. I think pauses is better, at least with regards to Burning Man. Um, So I ran a camp last year, and it was a small camp, Um, but it was the kind of thing that was just exhausting enough. Um, that I thought I needed a break. I was also hoping to get into a PhD program this year. I didn't, um, but continued with that decision. It felt right, um, even if I wasn't in the program. Had I gotten to the program, of course, Burning Man coincides with the beginning of school, and so I'd wanted to focus on that. Um, uh, as far as being an elder, um, uh, so I attended um, Hollywood Avenue Church, still do occasionally, um, and I started going there back in 2008 when Ryan Bell was the pastor. Um, and there was something really special, um, about that space. Um, the activism that happened, the questioning that happened, um, the exploration of faith, um, and doubt that happened there. Um, it felt like the space I would be comfortable in serving as an elder. Um, I think after Ryan was fired, um, after a new pastor was brought on as much as I think the core of the people there at Hollywood are still doing incredible work. Um, I didn't feel like it was the space for me anymore. And I, I mean, it took a while. Like I still love the people there very much and I still try to be involved in the life of that space. But I think, um, over time I needed to step back from that because I felt like I wasn't fulfilling my duties as an elder. Also in my job as director of art residency at level ground, I'm traveling a lot. So often I just don't have the option of being there. So I think the combination of those factors um, made me feel like it was time to step back. I think the title of elder and the position of elder is something to be taken really seriously. And if I wasn't able to fulfill that in multiple ways, I shouldn't have that position. So like um, a lot of folks who are part of the spectrum community, they often feel like they're on the margins of communities in various ways, moving in and outside of um, Adventist membership roles. Uh, A lot of your art explorers being on the margins. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you hope to achieve in sort of self-understanding and and connecting with your audience? (laughs) Um. 
I mean, I guess the first thing I say is that when it comes to audience, I mean, while I suppose I have some hopes, my biggest is that the people who see my work feel something. Um, I don't mind if you walk away angry, sad, mad at me, happy. Um, I'd prefer that than you leaving a piece of mine and shrugging. Um, so, you know, if 10 people walk in and see a piece, I hope there's 10 different reactions and different emotions. Below that, though, I hope that I get to kind of soften people's barriers around their ideology and have them come into a space and hear voices and experience emotions that they haven't before. Um, a lot of my work is about, well, if I step back, you know, in film, a lot of times, and in literature as well, you're trying to get somebody to walk in somebody else's shoes. I talk about my work that's more visual poetry, that's more experimental as walking in somebody's brain. You may not necessarily get to experience their day-to-day life. You probably won't. But you get to see their dream spaces and their mental landscapes. Um, and hopefully that has you walking out of that space with broader perspectives and the ability to listen a little better. Um, and I hope the same for myself. I hope that every project scares me a little, challenges me. I hope that I work with people that push me to be better. Um, to be more open, to include voices I hadn't thought of before. So that's great. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about works that you've been involved with this month, actually. Um, It's been, a, I think, a kind of exciting time for you. You've got a show, uh, part of a show called in uh, the Generational Aesthetics um, exhibit down at Cerritos College, and you have something opening up tonight, if I'm correct. That's right, a show called Dream Logic. So Generational Aesthetics was a one-night pop-up last weekend at um, Cerritos College. I'm a member of uh, the Torrance Art Museum Fo- Forum cohort. Um, it's an annual residency. They pick about 14 artists and curators to go through the year and ultimately, we'll create a museum show that will open December 7th this year. Um, but in addition to that, um, I get to work as, the, as I mentioned, the director of art residency at Level Ground. And it gives me the chance every so often to curate work. Um, and so tonight, I'm getting to curate a show called Dream Logic um, that is an exploration of that liminal space um, and sort of the weird moments you have between waking and dream. Um, and so I got to pick eight really cool artists who are doing some really interesting work, um, two experimental films, some sculptural work, some photography, um, work in all kinds of other different mediums. Um, and yeah, so that show opens up tonight. So kind of wrapping up here, um, congratulations on what you're doing. Can Thank you me. talk a little bit about um, telling stories? Because um, when I interact with your work, it... Um, also seems to hold a tension between what you what I think of as sort of uh, kind of a linear reality with filmmaking, but it becomes very abstract and very open to um, my um, associative experiences. Right. This is really funny because I was a, f- a few weeks ago. I was at um, the La Jolla Fashion Film Festival. Um, and uh, one of my pieces, A2 Number 1, was playing. And the person who runs the festival at the end of the festival came up to me and congratulated me on the work, but said, next year, a little more narrative, huh? Uh, <laughs> 
and the thing is, is that I think the work is really narrative. It's just not narrative in a way that, um, especially in the Western world, but in general, we're not trained to think about. I think we think about narrative as being very linear and very literary, um, the way a novel would unfold. Um, and I'm playing with narrative that is visual. I want to create layers and layers of visuals that are telling a story um, that are conveying idea and emotion. And I think that is also narrative just in a slightly different way. Um, what's really interesting about my approach um, and that tension is that I feel like my first home and my first love is short story writing. Um, that tends to be a little weird, but is fairly traditionally narrative. And so slipping into the space that's more poetic has been really interesting. And I think there is always that tension. And honestly, I'm always trying to push my work to be a little weirder. Like sometimes I will finish a cut and think, ah, that feels too narrative to me. And again, that traditional way, like what happens if I make it more uncomfortable? Um, and I think that's my constant practice is making it more and more uncomfortable. Not for the sake of discomfort, but I think for the sake of discovery, what else can I find as I keep pushing it? Well, it's been really great talking with you. And I'll just end with a kind of last question. Is there anything that connects you to um, the Adventist conversation these days? What, what's interesting there for you? Oh. You know, what's really interesting is that wherever I stand with Adventism, the idea of Sabbath has always been important to me, probably always will. Like, um, it's something that I've maintained consistently. Um, and it's really interesting to see those conversations happening in other space, especially the political and subversive implications of Sabbath, the anti-capitalist implications of Sabbath. And I'm really enjoying those conversations that tend to be happening on the left of Adventism and just the left of religion in general right now. Um, other than that, honestly, like I feel like a lot of the conversations that are happening are a little discouraging. Um, and it's not that I'm not paying attention to them. I just feel like I'm less surrounded by people who are talking about it. So every so often I dip in and kind of see where women's ordination is and see where some of these other facets are and then dip right back out. Um, I think there's important work for people who are activists within the Adventist space to be doing. I don't think that's a space I'm in anymore. Um, maybe it will be again. I don't think it is for now. Um, I've always said though, that if um, for whatever reason, the left of the church broke away, I'd be very interested in participating in what happened there. That's a great way to end. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it.